just past 7 o'clock and music's on. You know what time it is. Time for Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo and another huge show on tap for you tonight. Sports is starting to come back a little bit, Ira. It's pretty exciting stuff as we got to see UFC over the weekend. And they said this was one of the most bet cards ever, which makes sense because we haven't had anything to bet on or watch in months. Got UFC on Saturday. We have this coming weekend. We have golf coming up. Uh, we have the NASCAR races on Saturday from Darlington. The government in in England just approved for the Premier League to start on June first. So you're starting to slowly see different sports. It's going to be hard for the big team sports. We can talk get in to talk about that, but but on these individual sports, you're going to see boxing and and, and UFC definitely starting or you know in, in full force. And we're going to uh, talk about that in just a little bit. Also, Keith Law is going to join us. Anybody who's followed sports has heard the name Keith Law before. Definitely written his stuff. He's great. Tell us about him. Well, I love Keith Law because he, he writes. He used to be the longtime writer for ESPN. Now he writes for uh, for the Athletic, and um, he has interesting things in his book. He talks about uh, robot ump- umps. Should we have that? He talks about umpires in terms of criticizing that, but also some fallacies. He, he does about biases that we have, and he challenges a lot of the whole like the status quo bias, leaving mm. p- leaving players in the game, not taking out, not making moves, and it's just interesting to see how he breaks down all these famous baseball moves that we have. He goes into, into contracts and uh, in the book and starts talking about, you know, why are teams signing these terrible contracts? Mm-hmm. What happens? So I'm excited to have him on the show. Yeah, it, it's in, you know, a lot of people either love baseball or hate baseball. It, it's very polarizing. He's like obsessed with baseball. So this, this is uh, this is good stuff. And then Mark Carmen of WGN is going to join us. Well, Mark, I've heard him on. He's He was a big factor in terms of covering the Jordan. We have the last dance. So I can't wait to have him come on and talk about everything he knows about Jordan and gives the inside story about all those things. I mean, last night I was riveted. I was watching with my mother. We had such a good time watching it. I love, I could watch Jordan like 24-7-365. But I think it's great to have Mark on because he was at WGN Chicago and has been a longtime uh, reporter for Chicago Sports. All right, let's talk about it. UFC uh, 249 was Saturday night and I think this was a huge win for Americans and the UFC. Yeah, I mean, they, they where there was no fans at all was in Jacksonville. I've been in that arena. There was a, they used to play basketball. There was a couple of ba- NC basketball tournament so it's there it's an older it's veterans it's a little weird watching with no fans (laughs) but i want to tell you something so i go to a lot of i've been to a lot of ufc fights i've been to boxing tons of boxing fights matches and i used to manage boxers that were not the main event boxers but Mm -hmm. if you would go like say the main card starts at like say the main fight is like 9 30 10 o'clock well sometimes my fighters fight at six and guess what there's nobody there like it's empty i mean i was at the mayweather mcgregor fight and i was there fairly early for that for that for that uh, uh, that fight and there was like nobody in the arena everybody shows up for mayweather mcgregor nobody and then they all have to of course when Mm -hmm. it's over but the point is is that for a lot of these fights you they're like making a big deal that there were no fans whatsoever but for a lot of these fights there are no fans so it's not that unusual (laughs) and then even like for tennis like look at these golfers you go to the Honda Classic how many golfers are out there that aren't the big names? There's nobody following them. Maybe they're it's girlfriends, their parents, yeah. their wives. <laughs> and this is a pro golf tournament. I mean, everyone's following Tiger, pushing, shoving around. No, but right. And then in tennis, so you go to the U.S. Open. And the U.S. Open is a little different. But some of these other uh, tennis tournaments, yeah, the main guys, the Djokovic, Nadal, every other big matches are on the courts. But there's all these side courts, and there might be 10, 15 people watching it. So it's not so unusual. Like these players are like, I can't imagine playing without fans. Yeah, a college football game without fans is going to be unusual. An NFL football <laughs> game without is unusual. But in terms of some of these other sports, people say, oh, this is insane. I've never saw anything like It goes on all the time. And you being the super fan that you are, you are there for all of it. So <laughs> yes. you, you, you've definitely sent me pictures from 
venues, especially early on, like well, there's nobody here. Well, another example is Robert Morris. So I follow Robert Morris, my Gazzalino school. So they've just played in Toledo at mm-hmm. a tournament and there might have been 15 people watching the, the, in, in an arena that seats 5,000 to the point where that little kid was screaming and jumping up and down when someone's doing a foul shot <laughs> and the police told him it was to, to shut up or he's going to be put in jail or something. So I've been to some of these. I was at a Robert Morris game in Vegas once at one of the, like MGM or whatever, one of those arenas there and you know, seats like three, 4,000. There might be like 10, 50. Again, these small, low crowds. So I'm, it's not totally unusual to see that. I know for the football it will be, but for some of these other sports, it's not crazy, especially for UFC. If you go to a UFC in Vegas, at 5 in the afternoon and 4 in the afternoon, there's nobody there. Yeah, I didn't think about it like that. Let's talk about uh, what happened on Saturday, though, because it was it was a really exciting night. Well, there was it, it was a good card. There was uh, Greg Hardy was, went against Jorgen Castro. Now, Greg Hardy is intriguing to me because he was a star football player for the Carolina Panthers. He got into domestic violence situations, mm-hmm. was suspended by the league, back and forth, and he decided to say, look, I'm not... Then you saw he went from Carolina to, to Dallas, played there for a year, and just quit football and went to UFC. And he's... Like, the people in UFC don't like him. They think he's just one of these other... <laughs> athletes that's really a football player trying to but he draws eyeballs people are interested in him and he fought Jorgen Castro in a heavyweight match and, and he won three rounds it was three rounds to none but it was exciting to see Hardy just it's my first I've seen him a couple times but again knowing as a football player knowing he was a star all pro football player to see him in the UFC ring that was intriguing so he had a, he had a good win over Castro um, heavyweight there was Francis Nagano who's the number two ranked heavyweight when it gets his Jeremy Rosenstruck Jeremy Rosenstruck was calling out Nagano saying I'm going to beat him I'm going to beat him him. I'm going to be him. <laughs> well, Nagano goes, okay, let's do it. Francis Nagano, it was in like, it's like they walk out, they like, I think the Rosenstruck had like two little fake punches, and all Nagano did was start swinging. He literally was swinging, and it's like whatever, and knocks him out. Like in, it was like 18 seconds. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And Nagano, and then Rosenstruck's on the on the ground, and it's like, well, and then he asks Nagano, he goes, well, he has a big future, but he should just be careful what he talks about and what he wants, and it was pretty cool to see that, because Nagano was talking very soft tones just after he just <laughs> knocked Rosenstruck out. So that was exciting. Is his four straight knockout wins for Nagano and three within 45 seconds. So he's like the Mike That's Tyson. That's Yes. I mean, it's a, <laughs> if you've seen Nagano, get, get a chance to see him. And then the, the co-main event was Henry Ceuto, who was all, the flyweight and bantamweight champion. He's You might know him from the Olympics. He won the Olympic gold as a wrestler. And he was fighting Dominic Cruz, who was a former champion in the bantamweight. So it was pretty exciting to see that you know champion versus former champs. Ceuto dominated the first round. Second round, he gets a headbutt. And he's like, and they had to go check to see a blood everywhere but boy he came out and started beating up Cruz in that second round and then there was an early stoppage like they Cruz was trying to get up but Cejudo was throwing like 15 straight punches and the ref stopped the fight and Cruz was upset he's like oh this is terrible he made the comment he goes I think the ref smelled like uh, cigarette and beer which I <laughs> love that line I mean that's a great you don't we need to have more of that in sports when someone complains the umpire smelled like cigarettes and beer for stopping the fight <laughs> and you have to question about Cruz because he was a former champion and let it maybe let the fight it was one of those questions is he was getting up he wasn't knocked down. He was getting up and they stopped the fight like that. But, uh, and then Cejudo, who's 33 years old, retired. Which, of course, <laughs> in boxing and UFC that's weird, but then he retired after the fight. Um, and then the main event was Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje. And Ferguson was the number one ranked light heavyweight uh, lightweight fighter. Uh, this one that McGregor and Khabib uh, wrestles in. And Gaethje is the number four ranked. And everyone was, this fight everyone thought was great. Ferguson was the favorite. Um, he was, you know, been, you know, had a third 12 match with 
winning streak. Uh, but Gaethje came in, and it was from beginning to end dominated for five rounds. At five rounds, at, and he was just dominated the every single round. And with like I don't know, thirty seconds to go in the fight, they just stopped it mm-hmm. because uh, Ferguson was was uh, you know smashed. But they a lot of people said, well, it could have been fixed. It wasn't fixed. Gaethje was known as a brawler. Gaethje was known to be getting in these great fights. And in this fight, you saw him. I love when he hear the ring. His uh, corner men were telling him, "Don't throw his hard punches. Don't don't go crazy. Don't get in a brawl." Mm-hmm. And it's like Ferguson was trying to bait him. Into this brawl, and Gaethje was like, "I'm just going to pound you. I'm just going to pound you the whole fight." <laughs> and uh, really, a big win for Gaethje, and he set himself up for some big money fights uh, coming in the future. So I was that was exciting, but it was it was all in all, I enjoyed watching it. It didn't run so late, like sometimes UFC somehow goes on till two, three yeah, in the morning. It seems like so it didn't run. It was like one in the morning, not two mm-hmm. or three in the morning. But um, there was a fighter Sosa who tested positive uh, for uh, COVID nineteen earlier, like yeah. the day before. They pulled him off the card, and that's what. Can do so again a fight in these things. The fighters are separated. They come out, they wrestle. They don't wear masks when they wrestle, of course. But they, it's only those two fighters. And if someone tests positive, they take them out. The problem in the team sport aspect is if one of the Pittsburgh Steelers tests positive, are you going to stop the entire team? And then the whole uh, game has to be stopped. So there's that's the problem with team sports rather than individual sports where you have it. That's going to be until you know that's going to until we have a vaccine or until people say it doesn't matter if you get it or not. Then that's going to be the problem with these team sports. I read. Did you have? to see one of the undercard uh, matches, uh, Vicente Luca versus uh, Nico Price. It was a welterweight fight. One of the best fights I've seen. It was the best fight of the day. For sure. These guys just sat there and just took punches to the face for the, for the duration until the doctor stopped it. It was one of the most exciting. It was I on get, around five I, in the afternoon. Yes, <laughs> and again, that was a fight that if there was fans or no fans, there'd probably be nobody in attendance anyway for it. So, but they're gonna they're gonna wrestle again on Wednesday. There's another uh, uh, wrestle. There's a UFC fight again on Wednesday. The one thing is, from all the fights we saw, a lot of times UFC there's grapplers where they're on the ground yeah. and they're wrestling. But these were all stand up punches, mm-hmm. which is more exciting, of course, than grappling. So that was one thing that Khabib is known as a grappler. If you remember him against McGregor, he got McGregor mm-hmm. on the ground and just like, you know, manhandled him. Whereas the the boxing and the kicking and the striking, that's with the feet, that's more exciting. And that's watch. why people love heavyweights, because that's what they're... <laughs> they're not, they're not getting on the ground at all. <laughs> if, they, if they can prevent it. You're listening to Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. We'll have Keith Law from The Athletic in just about a minute. But Ira, we, we brought up tennis last week, and there's something kind of exciting happening here. Well, it's in West Palm Beach, and they won't say where. It's at some person's house, and I think I know where it is. I, I, it's probably, but it, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an individual's house, and he and, and Riley Opelka, who won Delray, and Tommy Paul practiced there, and they showed the court. The court's at that was on Tennis Channel, and the guy has a nice house. It's not a big mansion with a pool, and then they just they broadcast the event. No fans, of course. The lines were outside, and they actually picked up their own balls without the, <laughs> and then and they called their own lines. And there's been studies on. This. You're saying, oh, they call their own lines. When these players play against each other, they don't cheat. It's they're, like yes. they're giving, like they were, they were, like you want to, you want to err on the side of the ball being in, not out. So it's not like they're going to be cheating each other. Mm-hmm. Usually, that's what happens. I mean, there was a point where I think the umpire was like, that was out. I know you thought it was in, but because the umpire <laughs> could overrule, but the person called it in. Mm-hmm. But um, it was, it was exciting. And it was also, I want to say something. It went faster. People were wondering what they had to pick up their own balls. How long would this take? I just felt from a tennis perspective, it, it did seem faster when they were picking their own balls up. And and uh, they were certainly not tied to have their own set when they were serving and those things. And they played these fast games, was the first one to four, no ad scoring. But it was a whole, they played Thursday and Friday. Uh, 
uh, Riley Opeka, Tommy Paul, Herbert Herkes, and a guy from Serbia. And it was just exciting to see Paul out there. And Opeka, Opeka looks great. Opeka played well. And it was like a round robin type event. And they're going to have in two weeks uh, Allison Risk, uh, Daniel Collins, mm-hmm. uh, and, and some other Americans that are going to be playing in this type of it's an exhibition. It's not a tournament. There's no nothing. But at least got the players out there and hitting. And I got to watch some live tennis. Very good stuff. Uh, let's go to Keith Law now from The Athletic here on Iron Sports. We're talking, this is Iron Sports. We're talking to Keith Law, the author of The Inside Game. Keith was a longtime writer for ESPN, and now he writes for The Athletic. Thanks a lot, Keith, for coming in these uh, tough times on, on Iron Sports. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Keith, your book, Inside Game, I read it this weekend. It's uh, tremendous. What a read. <laughs> and it really go after a lot of the thoughts in terms of baseball, and, 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 and thought of the ideas that people make and all the mistakes that people make. I mean, these are people that make a lot of getting paid a lot of money to make decisions. And you show them, you not only say this was a bad decision, but you give reasons why they made the wrong decision. Right. That is what I hope to do. It's not just to sort of poke fun at people who made bad decisions. I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of that, but that's not really the purpose of the book. My idea was to use some of these examples from baseball history to illustrate these concepts, the, these ideas of cognitive biases and illusions that affect absolutely everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, how smart you are, what education you've had. If you're human, you will fall prey to these biases. And so, but a lot of the literature describing them tends towards the academic. It's not necessarily accessible to everybody. So my idea, my original pitch for the book was to use baseball to make some of these things more accessible, more easily understood by anybody, regardless of what your background is in psychology or economics, so that you could maybe spot these things in your own life. Because like I said, we all fall prey to them. It's a matter of making sure your process, when you have to make a big decision, is set up so that you can work around them. And one, one of the biases you mentioned earlier in the book is the outcome bias. And they really go after Bob Bradley in this because they, you get that whenever someone wins or does something, you're, they've been known as like World Series uh, champion manager Bob Bradley. But you went in the book and said whether he couldn't have managed this World Series in the two, in the 2001 World Series any worse. It was probably the worst managed. And I loved your comment. You said Joe Torre was playing chess and Bob Bradley was playing Candyland. So explain outcome bias a little bit with that 2001 World Series. So outcome bias is essentially judging a process by the results as opposed to understanding that there may be factors beyond everyone's control that affected the results. So in this particular case, in the 2001 World Series, Bob Brenly had one of the worst series I've ever seen a manager have <laughs> in the postseason in baseball. He just made bad decision after bad decision. Some of them were snap decisions in the, over the course of a game, but many of them were things he clearly decided beforehand. Batting Tony Womack, who was a horrible hitter at getting on base, leadoff regularly having the number two hitter, often Craig Council, bunt Womack over to second ahead of number three hitter Luis Gonzalez, who had hit 57 home runs that season. Others were, like I said, the snap decisions within the game, such as the way he managed Byung-Kyung Kim, the Diamondbacks closer at that point, who ended up giving up two very late leads in games that the Diamondbacks ultimately lost. Yeah, the Diamondbacks won the World Series because of things that had nothing to do with Bob Bradley, primarily because of Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling, <laughs> who both had, uh, each individually had one of the best postseason series we've ever seen a pitcher have, or certainly in the most modern era of the playoffs. They bailed Bradley out. So did Bradley win the World Series, or was he just standing nearby when the Diamondbacks won the World Series? I would argue the latter. 
Yet, because Brentley won, he was praised for being a good manager. He was a World Series winning manager. The truth is, he didn't manage well. If he were the only factor, the Diamondbacks would have lost the series. The <laughs> fact that they won the World Series does not justify the moves that he made. But outcome bias is essentially saying it worked, so it was good. That's not how things work in the real world. You must judge a process by the process, not strictly by the results. And then there's another bias. You talk about base rate neglect. And, and I loved how, because we talk about drafting all the time. We're having the NFL draft coming up. And, and the point is, you really don't like the idea of drafting high school pitchers. And it hasn't worked out. But, but of course, teams keep drafting high school pitchers. Yes, they do. Despite, I think, pretty copious evidence and sort of a longtime scouting maxim that the two most dangerous things to do in the first round of the baseball draft are to take a high school pitcher or worse, to take a high school catcher. <laughs> now, with high school catchers, there just aren't that many of them, so it's not as interesting to study. But with high school pitchers, we have a pretty large sample to look at. And if you break all first-round picks up into four major categories, high school position players, high school pitchers, college position players, college pitchers, there's no comparison. High school pitchers are the worst category by far. They have the highest failure rate. They have the lowest percentage of guys who turn out to become stars. We see way more high school pitchers taken in the first round than we should, given these base rates, what the class as a whole, all high school pitchers, have done after they were drafted. But what you will also hear from scouts and even from executives is that if you want to get a Clayton Kershaw, you want to get a Madison Bumgarner, you have to take high school pitcher in the first round because both were. Both were high school left-handers taken in the top 10 picks of their respective drafts, 06 and 07. That's not wrong. It's true. Those guys were first-rounders, and they were first-rounders who absolutely worked out. But if you focus specifically on them, on individual examples that did work out, you ignore the base rate. You neglect that base rate and ignore the fact that at the time the Dodgers took Clayton Kershaw with the seventh overall pick in 2006, they were probably to some extent ignoring or simply deciding against judging it on the base rate, the fact that Clayton Kershaw was just another high school pitcher at that point. And he was not seen as a sure thing at all. In fact, his last or second-to-last outing in high school was quite was really not good. and There was a pretty decent chance he wasn't going to go in the top 10 picks at all. He was very much another risky high school player, high school pitcher, I should say, specifically, and that Every time you take a high school pitcher and you think, well, we might be getting another Clayton Kershaw, you're ignoring the much higher probability that you're actually getting the next Casey Kiker, a high school pitcher taken in the same first round as Clayton Kershaw, who never got out of A-ball. <laughs> and then I love your discussion of groupthink. And now we have stats and we analyze it, but there's a lot of, a lot of thoughts out there that don't really parlay themselves into stats. And one of them is, of course, Harold Baines, who just got last year into the Hall of Fame. And the the, the, his reputation was he's a clutch hitter. And you said, show in the book how there really is no clutch hitter. But the idea is that if people keep saying Harold Baines is a clutch hitter, Harold Baines is a clutch hitter, then everybody thinks he's the clutch hitter, even though there's no evidence right. that he's a clutch hitter. Right. And, well, and a lot of it, in his case, too, there's sort of this revisionist history that goes on, often goes on within baseball. It's happening with Omar Vizquel right now. Omar Vizquel in his entire major league career appeared one time on an MVP ballot. He received something like he appeared on something like forty percent of the Hall of Fame ballots this past off season. 
So none of you actually thought he was one of the most valuable players in baseball while he was actually playing. But now that he's done, you're going back and rewriting history and saying, no, this guy was one of the best players in baseball history. Pro tip, he actually wasn't. He was a good player. He does not belong in the Hall of Fame. And what happened in the case of Baines in particular, I think, is that once he was put into the Hall of Fame, once he was actually on that Veterans Committee ballot, suddenly there was this change in thinking. Oh, no, no, he was, he was a clutch hitter. He was, he was a better hitter than anybody actually realized. And people sort of go along with it to justify this decision of him being put into the Hall of Fame. I mean, that, that case, even describing that in cognitive biases, in terms of cognitive biases, I, I was aware I was on a little shakier ground because it may have just been flat-out nepotism. <laughs> Tony Larissa pushing for one of his favorite guys. That's also very clearly a factor. But it gave me a chance to talk about some of the rather ridiculous things Tony Larissa has said, especially later in his career, which shows that while he had a very long and distinguished tenure as a baseball manager, a lot of what he thinks, a lot of the things he thinks and says about baseball are just not true. We're talking to Keith Law, the author of Inside Game, who's a longtime writer at ESPN, and now he works for The Athletic. You gave a stat about Nolan Ryan. When I read it, I had to reread it 10 more times. I cannot believe. Do you, Nolan Ryan pitched in a game 13 innings. 235 pitches and faced 58 batters. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. And, but you mentioned, but Ryan and that perspective of survivorship biases, we talked about how, well, can't pitchers pitch 130, 140, 50 innings like they used to. And really it was only like, they always point to Nolan Ryan as the pitcher that did it. And you say he is such an outlier that you just cannot use Nolan Ryan as an example of anything. If you start talking about, well, at least when I start talking about pitch counts, particularly for high school and college pitchers on Twitter, it is a mortal lock that some mouth breather will show up in my mentions and say, but what about Nolan Ryan? Yes, Nolan Ryan did pitch a tremendous amount, even when young. He also missed about two years due to injuries when he was extremely young, and that probably led to the Mets' decision to trade him in the first place. So I wouldn't say any of that actually worked out. But once he got to his early 20s, he turned out he was extremely durable, managed to stay healthy basically into his early 40s. He is the most extreme outlier, and he is the perfect example of survivorship bias, which uh, is, in this case, is if you say, well, pitchers can't survive high pitch counts when they're young. And someone says, well, what about Nolan Ryan? You remember Nolan Ryan because he's the one who survived, hence the name survivorship bias. What you don't remember are all the guys who got blown out by excessive use, whether in high school or college or in an earlier era, even in the low minors, who blew out their arms, their elbows, or especially their shoulders, which even today is still often a career ender and never managed to recover. If I tell you about a guy like Chris Honnell or Corwin Malone, those names don't mean anything to most fans, but they were worked fairly hard when young, particularly as amateurs. They got hurt. And they never panned out. And we do have a lot of evidence that says high pitch counts in game, high innings counts over the course of a, a season or a, an amateur spring do produce worse outcomes with higher rates of injuries. And we know that that's not good for pitchers as a whole. So rather than just testing them all out to see which ones are Nolan Ryan and not caring that you broke the rest of them, why don't we use them all more carefully? And let the Nolan Ryans more gradually emerge over time while keeping everybody else healthy. <laughs> and I love how you talk about status quo bias. And two times in my life I've been watching sports and somebody has thrown furniture out of a window. And they were both Red Sox fans, completely different fans, one in 86 World Series, 
when uh, the, the Bill Buckner World Series, and also mm-hmm. the 2002 AL Championship game when Pedro left Pedro Martinez in the game, and the Yankees came back and won that, and just amazing games. And I, I couldn't believe when I was at Penn one time and I saw a, a couch go out a window, which I could not believe they got a couch out the window. And then in 2002 when I right. saw a chair fly out. So I think Red Sox fans, that the whole bias should be maybe the Red Sox fans like to throw furniture when their team is doing terrible. But the point is that you raised that the status quo bias. And I thought it was really interesting because you compared those two series. In the case of status quo bias, I think it's easiest for people to understand just in general terms. And I do give these two very specific examples of a manager essentially refusing to take a player out of the game, replace him with someone who was a better option. Bill Buckner in the first example, Pedro Martinez in the second example. But to think about status quo bias, just think of it this way. When you are asked, do I leave things as they are or do I make a change? Do I keep my current job or change to another job that is probably a little bit better? It feels riskier. It feels more momentous to make that change. There's comfort in simply not changing anything, even though that is also a choice. The two choices don't feel as equal because they are not as maybe as significant emotionally, the idea of making a change. I just changed jobs. I just left ESPN after 13 years. I left working for the Walt Disney Company, a large and very stable and very successful company, a good company to work for, to go take a chance with a smaller, newer, uh, and sort of less proven outlet in, with the athletic. I decided it was a better offer, and I did do it. But it absolutely crossed my mind that the easiest thing in the world to do was to stay. It was my own status quo bias because it involved really not doing anything. All I had to do was put my name on a new contract and nothing would have changed. That felt like it was easier. And on the emotional side, it felt like that maybe that is the better option. But I knew, rationally speaking, it wasn't. When I looked at all of the variables, all the considerations, I realized that the athletic was the better place for me personally, at least, and that I was letting status quo bias creep into my thinking and cause some doubt. And then the idea we, we see a lot in baseball and the sunk cost fallacy. Because I was watching, I, one of the last sporting events I was before they had the shutdown was I saw the Tigers play the Astros. And are the Nationals, I think it was either the Astros or Nationals, a fit team. And you say Miguel Cabrera out there and you're like, wow, this is Miguel Cabrera, future Hall of Famer, but he's still going to be playing. He's not playing well, but these teams and you talk about with Pujols, with the, with the, with the LA Angels, the idea that these players, they pay so much money, they, they get paid, but they keep playing even though they really shouldn't be out there. Right. And what happens in the case of Pujols, Miguel Cabrera, we see this constantly with players towards the end of their careers who are signed to contracts that might be reasonable at the point when they're signed for that first or second season, but that as players age and particularly position players, we know as they get to their late thirties, they start to decline if they haven't started earlier. In those cases, teams would often be better off benching or even outright releasing those players than continuing to play them. But they, and You see in media coverage of when a player like that is released, for example, which is rare, but it does happen, oh, the team chose to eat his contract. It's simply not true. In baseball, at least, if the Angels release Albert Pujols tomorrow, he still gets every dime on the contract. And if they keep him, he still gets every dime on his contract. So there's no difference to them financially whether they keep him or or release him, whether they play him or they bench him. 
it is not a financial decision. It should strictly be a baseball decision. Is it worth having him on the roster? And if he's on the roster, is it worth having him in the lineup? Now, I argue in his case, the answer to both of those questions is no. But the Angels have chosen not to do anything with him, to continue to have him on the roster and in the lineup. And I argue that is the sunk cost fallacy. Instead of recognizing that that cost is already happening, they've already committed to spend all that money, they they let that become a variable in the decision. Well, we're paying him, so we should play him. We should get something out of him, even though all the evidence says you're not going to get anything out of him because he's not that good. And it's also better, like, it's all, I always think it's almost better for some teams when these players that they give these bad contracts to just get hurt. Like Jacoby Ellsbury for the Yankees. I mean, they never had mm-hmm. to have that issue because he's just hurt, so it's easier just to have him cut, he's injured, and forget about him. If Jacoby Ellsbury's out there hitting 200 with one home run, then you'd have all these issues of your, you know, look, Jacoby Ellsbury's out there, we signed him for this huge contract. It is easier when they get hurt. This sort of takes the decision out of your hands, right? Particularly because if the player has, as, as Ellsbury did, a significant enough injury to end up, say, on the 60-day DL, then he's off the roster. Right? He's off the 40-man roster entirely. With uh, I don't know that other sports have something that's equivalent to that, but in our case, at least, you can kick the can down the road. right? You're paying Ellsbury anyway, but he's hurt, so we don't have to worry about playing him. He's so hurt that he goes on the 60-day DL, he doesn't have to take up a 40-man roster spot for the entire season. Eventually, you do have to make a decision. You have to reinstate him to the 40-man roster in October, but you avoid confronting that sunk cost fallacy for long periods of time during each season because the injury has essentially taken him out of the way. And we talk about long-term baseball. You mentioned in your book and a lot of the fallacies, but just when we see these long-term baseball contracts, and I heard Scott Boris discuss about saying, well, really, we know that at the end of the year they're going to be terrible, but you can't really – I'm helping the owners out because you can't pay a player uh, $60 million or $70 million. So that's why you have to give the Garrett Cole the th- nine-year 324 because really this year right. you, you give him 50 or 60. But again, these teams with the pitchers that they keep, I mean, you look at how many contracts, I mean, my friends all say to this, most do these contracts ever work out? And you can always find that one or two that work out. But in general, these right. long-term deals have not worked out at all. No, if you look at Justin Berlander, his contract arguably has worked out. Every contract he signed has arguably worked out. There will eventually come a point when it doesn't, right? He's Most of these pitchers, even if their long-term contracts seem to be pretty good, eventually you know, the body's no longer willing and the contract is still going at that point. That point will happen for, for every pitcher. But what we see in particular is teams giving out contracts of, a, of durations to pitchers. This sort of comes back to that base rate neglect. The number of pitchers who've gotten contracts over five years who've still been effective past the fifth year of those contracts, it's a pretty small percentage of all such contracts. And the longest contracts of all given to pitchers have almost never worked out. There was outrage when Kevin Brown got a seven-year deal from the Dodgers 20 years ago, <laughs> and we're still doing that. I am not at all opposed to players getting paid. Pay them $40 million a year. If that's what they're worth this year, and you know, Mike Trout is probably worth $50 million a year to the Angels. Pay them that now. But it is the duration of that contract, of these contracts, which then leads into back into that sunk cost fallacy. Well, we've got this guy, and we're paying him $30 million. We have to use him. No, you don't. One way you can avoid the sunk cost fallacy is to actually pay him more money over a shorter period of time so that the length of the contract better coincides with the end of his effectiveness. 
We've been talking to Keith Law, the author of The Inside Game, a great book. I know people are stuck at home looking for things to do. Uh, if you love baseball, and if you don't really love baseball that much, but are just interested in the different fallacies, I think this is a great book to read. So, Keith, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Great stuff there from Keith Law. This is Ira on Sports, 95.9, the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So, Ira, I got really excited on Friday as it came across uh, my feed that we're going to get this golf match in Jupiter here that, that everyone's been uh, everyone's been excited for. Well, when I ride my bike, I go, I park it at, at Riviera Beach, and then I ride to Hope Sound, Hope Sound, and I go right past the Seminole Golf Club. Mm-hmm. So that's where it's going to be. It's going to be Ricky Fowler and Matthew Wolf versus Rory McIlroy and Justin Johnson. Now, from a betting perspective, Ricky's like 31st in the world, and Matthew Wolf, a very good young golfer, mm-hmm. is ranked 87th. McIlroy's number two, Dustin Johnson number 10. So they're favored, clearly favored, but a lot a lot of people like Fowler and Wolf in this. They think, well, Rory and, and Dustin are probably maybe just not taking yeah. it as serious. And this is the chance for Fowler and Wolf to do this. I wonder how they pick the teams that way. But uh, because Rory and Dustin have won a combined 38 tournaments, five majors versus only seven tournaments for Ricky Fowler and Matthew Wolf. So it'll be interesting from that. But it'll be uh, uh, one of those skins game type event where they have to go each hole who has the best uh, uh, the best you know shots on the hole mm-hmm. and go yeah, from that. carry over from there. And, and that's going to be on NBC Sunday. Sunday at two thirty, and then um, also we got. Uh, I guess it's not a pro am, but it, it is in a, in a sense as we're going to see the NFL mix up with golf, and this one's going to be at the Medalist, so we get to see two great South Florida. Courses. That's on twenty fourth. On the yeah, that's going to be cool because like Seminole and Medalist, you don't get to ever see on TV. I'm, uh, I'm an avid golfer, and I would just love to see these courses because I can't go look at them. Right, and you hear about it, and it'll be great. But that's this is going to be awesome too. We have Tiger, uh, Phil, Tom Brady, and Peyton Manning, and 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 clearly just going to be. I think it's. I think this was a great format because last year. When the between the talking between like Tiger and Phil, people was like, "Oh, what's gonna? How are they gonna talk?" It's hard to get two people to just talk the entire time. Mm-hmm. But I think when you have Peyton and Tom Brady, and you're definitely gonna have that. I'm, you know, Tom Brady doesn't talk so much. I mean, no. Peyton, you hear Peyton on detail and everything. It's almost like Michael Jordan to some extent when you hear Jordan talk. It's like I only need to see Brady, and you don't see him in this environment. I mean, this is like no, where never. he's gonna be talking more than anything. As we've seen Manning on TV with those ESPN specials, he's hilarious. He's joking mm-hmm. around. He's always doing interviews. He's talking. Certainly, Phil talks a lot. Tiger, more reserved. We saw him at more. But Brady's the one who I think is going to be cool because you just never, besides those press conferences, I mean, tell me how many times you've seen him interviewed and never. just have a long forum joking around. Like, it's going to be great. Like, I think I think he's going to, I think Tom Brady, when this is done, people are going to say, what a personality because he's going to be joking. You're going to see a side of Tom Brady you've never seen before. I think the, the only thing I can ever remember, I think he was on Late Night with Fallon or one of these late night shows and he was very entertaining. I, you know, it's, but that's yeah, you're right. There's so few examples of seeing Tom Brady in pop culture, whereas Peyton Manning, you can't walk down the street and not see his face. Right. I mean, this is good. I think you're going to see more of this. I mean, I I can't. Ima- I could imagine someday seeing uh, Michael Jordan playing one of these. That would I be- could definitely see that. <laughs> Jordan Brady. <laughs> Let's just put every big name person mm-hmm. in there at all. We've but already I- got Romo playing in tournaments. Yeah. So sponsors exemptions. So I no. I think it's I think it's going to be fun for the golf ones. This again Sunday at two thirty on NBC, and then on TNT on May twenty fourth is uh, on Sunday also. So two Sunday events. We got about 10 minutes left here on Ira on sports before we have to get uh, to our second interview of the day. Mark Carmen. Um, 
Ira, let's talk about NASCAR because they're doing the same thing. They're ready to go and resume sports, whether there's fans or not. Right. Well, there's going to be no fans, but this is going to be at Darlington, South Carolina. And this is a really, like, this is a weird track. I was doing research for this and, and looking at it. And it's in a, when they bought it, there was a minnow farm. And so when they designed, <laughs> it was 1950. So when they designed the track, it was like an egg, but it's an egg, which is uneven. So like one side, there's a big oval mm-hmm. and the other's a small oval. And then the straightaways are different. So it's, it makes it unique. And, uh, because the, they wouldn't want to, they want to move up the, the minnow farm. Um, it only seats 47,000. It's one of those smaller tracks in terms of the seating. And they used to run two races. You might have heard the Southern 500, but uh, but now that it, then it was not to, and then we brought it back. But now it's the only race once a year. It's called the Lady in Black because the night before the race, the track maintenance crew would cover the entire track with fresh outfall sealant. And uh, so it just looked totally black. And uh, they, uh, it's like one of those, it's, it's an exciting, it'll be, people always say it's a great race, a great place to watch in terms of uh, the NASCAR races. Now, remember, Remember, these uh, drivers have not had practice. Mm-hmm. They have not, they're not doing anything. They're just going to get in their cars and go. Like, that's going to be, yeah. I mean, I got to think there's going to be accidents. But the point is that they haven't tested the cars. There's nothing except just get in the car and ride. They've done, they've done no work on this track. Remember, for NASCAR, NASCAR races, they usually run and run yeah, they're and run. Week, right? They're yeah. practicing. They're getting the right tires. This is like you're going to get in your car today. You're getting out of your house. And it's even worse because they're not used to this car has been in the shop. So it's even like if you just went to a new car like got a car just sat in it and then you start driving at 200 miles an hour with 40 other guys driving 200 miles an hour <laughs> it's very cool stuff oh uh, if you saw days of thunder this was in days of thunder the darlington the darlington track yes. was used in with tom cruise so uh and uh, they've only nascar's run the daytona 500 won by denny hamlin uh, the vegas was jolie logano california races alex bowman and jolie logano won phoenix again and that was the last race march 8th and they canceled atlanta miami texas bristol richmond talladega dover charlotte so this would be great. If you remember from the Daytona 500, then Ryan Newman was in that accident. He's going to be racing in this too. So he's back racing. He's mm-hmm. fine from that concussion. So that look, it's great. I, I told you, I, I was I love NASCAR when I was younger. Sort of fell. There's so many other sports on, but I'll be watching this. It'll be great. It's on Sunday at 3:30 on Fox. So Ira, we were talking about how excited we were for the NFL draft, just because there was nothing going on forever. I got to tell you, I almost had that same excitement for the NFL schedule release just to see, you know, how everything was going to shake up. My one observation is the Jets could open up 0-7. The the Jets' schedule is really tough. Of their away games, too, three West Coast and KC. Of their of the ones that aren't division, four four of the five are West Coast or Kansas City. So I think it's going to be a really tough year for them. Uh, my Giants, I'm a little bit happier with the schedule. What were you thinking about these schedules coming out? It was weird. I wasn't that. Ex- I mean, I wasn't like I know who. Well, in if I was thought if I was thought for certain I was going to these games, then which I, I know I'm probably there's a zero percent chance I'll go to any of these games. But the point is is that I like to you know do the schedule with the Penn State, so I layer the Steelers mm-hmm. schedule with the Penn State schedule. I love the this is what it's awesome. But now no. I'm not going to go to the games. It doesn't, it's not that sort of that, I wasn't that excited about where, because I knew who the Steelers, like at the end of the season's over, you know who they're playing. Yeah, you know the Home and away. Mm-hmm. You just don't know when the dates are. And so you look at like, what's you don't the, have any Thursday night games. What's and, the yeah. Thursday nights? What's the Sunday nights? Uh, Thursday night, September 10th, it's going to open with Houston at Kansas City. Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes. That's an exciting game. Miami opens at New England. That'll be exciting mm-hmm. for Miami and New England. So, so as uh, down here in South Florida, it'll be exciting. And then they play the Bills at home. So they, two interesting, you know, uh, divisional matchups and then their Thursday night at Jacksonville so it's interesting seeing Miami go to Jacksonville for a game and then they play Seattle at home and then they're at San Francisco at Denver 
And then they, so then October 25th is your next home game. One of the criticisms, if there were fans, is that they have too, the Dolphins seem to have too many games in September and October when it's 100,000 degrees and it's a one o'clock instead of putting, hopefully the Dolphins will get better and they'll start playing night games, but that's one of the things. And then they play December 6th. They have a nice run at the end. December 6th, Cincinnati, you get to Joe Burrow at, and then they play Kansas City and then New England and then at Vegas. So you're going to, boy, December is good. If Miami's doing anything, it'd be exciting for that month. And then Tampa Bay opens at New Orleans in their first home game for that Tom Brady. Down, huh? Tom Brady yeah. versus Breeze. <laughs> as, as then Carolina Panthers. Uh, they play October 18th. Green. This is going to be a big game to circle. October 18th, uh, they play Green Bay at home. Maybe the last time Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers ever face each yeah. other. So except, so that should be cool. And then um, October 25th at, at Vegas. Everybody, If you look at the uh, StubHub prices, and not, everything in Vegas is like $500. I, I can imagine. It's unbelievable. And then Tampa Bay plays. Here's another circle the game. Sunday night, Sunday, I think afternoon, but they might, uh, would be Tampa Bay, Kansas City at Tampa Bay. I mean, what a, I mean, that thing, they never saw out any of their games. Mm-hmm. They're going to sell out their whole schedule. So that was tremendous. And then the Monday night football schedule, interesting games. Saints at Raiders in week two. The Chiefs are at, the, week three is like their marquee. The, the, the Chiefs and Mahomes will play Lamar Jackson in the Raiders. Yeah. AFC championship game matchup. In, in Baltimore, that should be, that's the, that should be the game they're talking about. And then, um, Arizona plays, the Cowboys are on week six. So whenever the Cowboys are on Monday night football, that's a big thing so um you want to talk a, a little bit about Dak Prescott here we got a minute or two uh before we have to get to Mark Carmen I, I I'm more shaken up about this every day Ira because I'm really starting to think that it this is a huge risk on both t- you know the team's taking a risk here by franchising him he's taking a risk by not taking the lower deal and I don't know who it's going to work out for I think Dak Prescott. I mean, when you when you keep hearing this, they look. They've offered him thirty four to thirty five million with a hundred five million guaranteed. That's a lot. Of money. He can sign as a franchise tag thirty four and thirty five million. Supposedly he wants forty. I, I think it's ridiculous. We're talking about everybody twenty percent unemployment in America with all this. I mean, his agents are just doing him a total disservice. And I'm telling you, I think the Cowboys are going to say no. I, I, we're at this point now that I think they're asking for so much. Like they, they don't mind. They're offering him to pay him the highest paid uh, quarterback in game, which is fine. They want to offer. They're not going to go crazy for Dak Prescott. He was thirteen and three as a rookie, then nine and seven, ten and six, eight and eight. Like not just but and how about this? He was twenty three and four as a rookie in terms of touchdown interceptions, but then he was twenty two and thirteen, twenty two and eight, and thirty and eleven. I mean he's thrown thirteen, eight, and eleven interceptions the yeah. last three years. I'm telling you, I'm I'm the Cowboys. I'm taking that thirty five million. I'm putting Sandy Dalton my quarterback. I'm upgrading on other positions. I let that go. I'm, I, yeah. I think if he's wanting this much money, uh, and he's and this time, then I, his agent and him and just forget it. I, this is just ridiculous. And you know, beyond the record, Ira, think about all those wins that are against the Giants and the Redskins. You know, it, it's. Kind of like what they were saying about Baker Mayfield. Like, well, you know, he's got some wins, but who does he beat? Cincinnati twice every year. So Dak has proven he can't beat Carson Wentz. And he can't beat good teams. So that would almost bother me more than anything is that I just don't trust him to, to win the big ones. Yeah, and I just that's why the money thing is just crazy. I mean, if they if they commit to the forty million, I mean Stephen Jones came out today and said, Well, the analytics show that if you ever pay quarterbacks, he didn't need to say that if you pay the quarterbacks mm. too much money, then it takes away from other positions. But again, Tom Brady was in the middle of the pack all these years in terms of making money, and mm. that's helped the Patriots do all the other, signing all the other players. But at this point now, I'm like the Cowboys, I'm like, okay. Forget it. I, I think I, the more you keep looking at Dak Prescott at $40 million, the more you don't like him. I mean, the more you're like, I don't know if that's worth it. I mean, it just there's a point where you're just like, I don't think it's worth it to pay him that much, and I'd rather take the money. And you have Andy Dalton now under that you can bring in, who's a very serviceable quarterback, uh, improves the team in other directions, and go from there. But I don't know if 
might commit a hundred and I mean ten million dollars to Dak Prescott, who I do not view as a top ten quarterback in the league. Yeah, he's not elite, and that's elite money. So I, you know, I don't know. And I think what you what you said matters. That there's Andy Dalton's a free agent. There's uh, Cam Newton's a free agent. So it's not like. They're strapped. There are options for some of these teams, and maybe not putting $40 million into the quarterback position is, is the way that uh, some of them should go. Uh, we got just about a minute here. What, what do you think with baseball here? Well, it's interesting that they went from 40 rounds to five for the draft. And unlike we're talking about with the NBA, where the NBA is going to try to use this, having a minor league system for the NBA for the G League, it looks like baseball is getting, to, they've eliminated, besides the rounds being cut, they've eliminated 40 minor league baseball teams. Yeah. And they really are saying, look, go to college. Like, there's going to be no incentive for these people to come out in the draft if they're only going to pay $20,000, stay in college. So really, the baseball is sort of saying, we're, t- we're tired of funding all these teams with, and all, the, all these for the minor league system and wanting to put it to college. But the what you know one thing you um, that uh, Keith Law mentioned in, in the interview we just had with him is he talked about college baseball and about how there's a less incentive for the college baseball uh, managers to, to have for their pitchers and everything mm-hmm. than than if they're in the system itself for the Pirates or whatever. It, it is uh, crazy how that's all going to shake out as we keep going. Let's go to Mark Carmen from WGN here on Iron Sports. We're talking on Iris Sports with Mark Carmen, who is the host at WGN Radio in Chicago and also of fansided.com. Mark, thanks a lot for coming on and talking about the Chicago Bulls the day after the seventh and eighth episodes of the the Last Dance. Guys, it's my pleasure. It's my favorite thing to discuss. So thanks for having me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And uh, so, I mean, I, I I was texting with you and I said that I was that I was there in Chicago for games uh, three, four, and five, and then I went to Utah for game six. But uh, in this last, in the one episode we saw on Sunday, and I think the entire country was watching it, uh, you brought back the whole retirement and about when Michael, after the third, the third title, decided to give up uh, everything in terms of basketball and go into, and to first retire and then go into to baseball. Uh, you were there for that time. And talk about the feeling in Chicago uh, during that period of time when he just walked away from the game in the middle of his prime. Well, it's funny because, I had forgotten about how terrified I was that he was going to retire after all the media coverage in Atlantic City, and he was incredibly bothered by it. He stopped talking to the media. Magic Johnson's putting stuff out there. You're going to drive him out of the game. And Jordan's doing interviews in the finals saying that, uh, you know, it could be sooner than later that he leaves. So I was worried about it. And then, you know, when his dad was murdered, it got to the point where it was a huge concern that this guy's not going to play. But that night in against the Blue Jays in the playoffs for the White Sox, and he throws out the first pitch, I remember thinking, oh, this is kind of sweet. Like, things are getting back to normal. He's in public. He's throwing out the first pitch. Maybe, you know, the mourning process is, you know, well underway. And then literally, I don't know, 20 minutes later, an hour later, whatever it was, the news starts breaking that Jordan's going to retire. Um, and they did a great job of just showing people on the street, watching TV, sitting outside WGN radio in our former studios. Uh, you know, it, it, the whole city stopped to watch this thing happen. And um, you know, I remember having like a sense that like the world has, was just ending. It was all over and nothing mattered again. And then he said, well, you know, if I choose to retirement means that you can, you know, choose to come back and play if that's what I want to do. I, I just remember thinking, oh, yeah there's a chance that he might play again. Thank God life can continue. And of course he ended up doing that. And the last dance really covered two issues that people were talking about is one is 
they've showed the interviews, which I've seen before, of David Stern saying, look, I did not banish Michael from the game. And, and they went through, they asked Michael the same questions and asked everybody else at Reinsdorf and said to, to stop with the rumors that he was suspended for 18 months for gambling and those things. And I thought it was nice. It was good for, I think, the show to address those rumors, which have certainly you've been heard floating around for a long time. Yeah, I always thought that that was completely and utterly ridiculous. Like, okay, hey, Mike, we're going to suspend you, and it's going to be a 17- to 18-month suspension, but you could come back in the middle of March of 1995 against the Indiana Pacers. We're going to lift the suspension that week, and you can start. And by the way, you'll act like you're going back to baseball, but then you're going to quit and there's going to be a strike, and then you can come back to basketball. Like, none of it – come on, man. You really think that David Stern kicked Michael Jordan out of the NBA? No one ever found out about it. And and also, before even that, like, you really think Jordan's that dumb that he would do something like Pete Rose would do? The, the, that, the guy loved gambling, period, end of story. He had the money to cover it, and you can make a, you know, a very credible debate that, or argument that you know, maybe he's got a gambling problem. But he's fortunate enough that he's a billionaire, and that's not going to sink him or his family. So I, I just never bought any of it. It, it was always ridiculous. And that was I loved how the last dance brought up about his father and the closest he had with him and, and how he was hurt from, from the death. Did you have a chance to interact with, with uh, Michael's father at all in terms of uh, you know, being around the team and those things? So I, you know, I, I was in college uh, while well, I was in high school when they – well, I just graduated high school and they won it in 91. So this is before my time getting to cover the team. My first year uh, in the locker room with them was 97. And then I was there for uh, all of 98, at least the home games. So I never knew James and I followed Michael closely. So his dad was always around. I mean, he was in Come Fly With Me, the first Jordan video that came out. I think 87 was there, maybe it was 88. But either way, uh, you know, his dad was all over it. And so was his mom. And on the 60 Minutes uh, first pieces that they did on him. His parents, you know, they were always front and center. And Michael was very, very strategic in crafting his image at that time where they're showing him, you know, ironing and doing his own cooking and just trying to be this guy that was never going to get a date. And it propelled him into being this all-American guy who was endorsing, you know, Gatorade and Chevy and McDonald's, right? But, um, you know, it was, it was James was his best friend. And, and everybody who was around the team that talked about James like just absolutely loved the guy. So, and I thought one of it was great that they brought up the part where Jordan doesn't want to speak to the media and his dad is jumping in from protective <laughs> father. So, you know that you know that was a pretty good window in you know in in their relationship and how much you know, James loved his son and, and wanted to be there for him. Yeah, I mean, I got the sense that he was more a different type of father than we think of, like a Lavar Ball and those type of fathers that are more <laughs> dominating. You know, those things. Even though probably he would beat Lavar Ball if they played one on one. But um, I liked in in the book it they real in the in the series uh, they talked about the the year when when Jordan was away and what happened with the Bulls that time and the Cole Scotty Pippen. I saw you on Twitter. We're, we're talking about the one point eight seconds when he. Re- it was just. Com- um, it's amazing to me that Scotty Pippen, who is known to be the most best, you know, the great passer the selfless player all those things wouldn't he's the probably the most famous player for refusing to enter a basketball game just an amazing turn of events in that Knicks Bulls series yeah and you would think that Scotty would sit there in the documentary and reflect back and say you know I wish I had done it differently but proud man look I've put a ton out there I've sacrificed 
everything, or at least some being the second banana to Michael, and here's my chance for the biggest game of the year. Our whole season's on the line, and you're calling a play for Tony Kukoc. I have earned the right to shoot that shot. But the thing was is that Scotty was never clutch like that. That wasn't his game. I can remember one game winner he hit, and it was off a rebound, and it landed in his hands, and he's in the lane, and he, and he flips in like an eight-footer. But it was just a reactionary thing, right, not something that he had to actually craft and do. So he, was just, it wasn't, he wasn't that guy. And Kukoc, as they did a great job pointing out, he had a ton of clutch shots that year. So Phil was right to call the play for him, and I get that Scotty was mad. And Scotty just had moments in his career where he would let his ego and his insecurity and, and his pettiness get the best of him. Uh, and Michael would do it in his own way by, like, lashing out at Jerry Krause, which we've seen a million times, and don't smoke this cigar, it's going to stunt your growth, all that type of stuff. <laughs> but, you know, Scott, Scotty let it impact the team in that moment, and um, uh, he just – it would have been such a bigger deal, too, if, if Kukoc doesn't hit the shot, but obviously it was still a huge deal. And I love Bill Cartwright for what he – everything he did there on the bench in the locker room stand-up guy and that team you know they were the jordanaires jordan said a million times you know my supporting cast my supporting cast and horace grant was pointed out he was bothered by that so these guys were so motivated to prove that they were a huge part in the team's success and for him to get in the way with that and get all personal about who was getting to shoot that shot it was ridiculous and then if it wasn't for the phantom Hubert Davis foul, which they didn't even cover, and I was amazed they didn't cover that. They might have actually won that series and made it to the finals. So that would – there's a lot of things that – I mean, I guess they had to cut some things, even though it's you know, 20 hours long. But but I thought that was where they p- could have brought back the fact that the, the, the phantom Hubert Davis foul in that game. See, see, that's a great point. And I wondered if Michael had anything to do with that or maybe the producers were just trying to, I don't know, be nice to Mike because – there's, you know, that team, if you were a huge Jordan fan, like I was, and I was a huge Bulls fan, but I also wanted Jordan's legacy intact. There was part of you that did not want them to win that year because it was going to tarnish his legacy. Well, see, they won it without him. Right. Still to this day, like people will use that year. Well, they won 57 games in 93. They won 55 in 94. How good was he? So, you know, I was hypersensitive that that was going to be a topic of conversation for the rest of the time. And it, it, it's people like my, my good friend Nick Wright will bring that up. <laughs> So I was wondering why they, why they glossed over that. Um, you know, I was wondering it was intentionally left out, so there was no real drama around what, other than the fact that they just lost and he was gone. And then I, they covered the Orlando series. So he comes back, he goes, he's back. And they cover the, the Orlando series that he lost. That Orlando team was great. I mean, the fact that they even lost in the finals, I think, was pathetic. They didn't really try against Houston. But to have Penny Hardaway, Shaquille O'Neal, Horace Grant, uh, Nick Anderson. I mean, that, it was a great team. And that, they were like the perfect team, though, to... I mean, I remember watching that series. It was just, that was, it was, Jordan had trouble. I mean, that was a difficult, the whole Nick Anderson stealing the ball thing, 45 to 23. I mean, that was just, that was like a, it was almost like a soap opera watching it live for the, over like the week that the series was on. Well, you just knew that he wasn't himself yet. He'd have moments, he'd have bursts, but uh, he couldn't do it night in and night out. And the highlights of him shooting air balls, those were still jarring watching him yesterday. I, I, I had repressed those moments. (laughs) Uh, from my from my memory, but uh, you're right. Orlando had a ton of talent. They weren't quite ready to win the whole thing yet. And I mean, Akeem Olajuwon. When you talk about where he lands in the history of the game, what he did to Shaquille O'Neal in that finals, 
uh, you know, incredibly, incredibly impressive. But you know, who knows how many titles Orlando would have won if they had, you know, O'Neal would have stayed around and, and Penny doesn't hurt his knee. I mean, that team was 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 stacked, no doubt, no doubt about it. And but I, you know, if, if Michaels himself and they don't let Horace obviously leave, well, that's, there's a double effect there with him being in Orlando. Uh, the team, even if even if with Michael like he was, uh, if Horace is on that team, they probably. I think would still get past the magic if you subtract Horace off the magic and put him on the Bulls. We're talking to Mark Carmen, the host of WGN Radio in Chicago, and also fansighted.com. Well, I guess the one thing I've, I've, I can't wait to, this is the debate of all debates because I am, of course, a Jordan lover, and uh, you hear the Nick Wrights of the world that with LeBron. I mean, he has LeBron, LeBron, LeBron. And, and I guess what you're seeing in the series is like it's clear that Michael Jordan did not pick his team. Like, I think if he went to Jerry Krause and said, I want a player, Krause would not pick that player. So the point was he has no control on the team. And then you look at LeBron, who is trading away Andrew Wiggins, picking up Kevin Love, bringing Bosch, putting him with Wade, picking Ray Allen. I mean, just the general manager in, in whatever, in name, not in name only, of all these teams that he's working on. You can see how Jordan, it was just completely different approaches in terms of Jordan just driving his players, the Bushlers, the Steve Kerrs, the, the, anyone he had, he's just going to make you Scotty Burrell. Whereas LeBron orchestrates his whole teams together to make put these teams together. So I have a very hard time giving Jerry Krause any credit whatsoever. Now, he, he drafted Pippen and Grant, even though he didn't want to draft Grant and the whole organization had to talk him out of it. He wanted Joe Wolf. But I will give Jerry credit for not listening to Michael. <laughs> Michael wanted him to trade for Buck Williams and probably give up Horace. And Buck was a good player, but that would have been a mistake. He wanted him to go get Walter Davis, which – probably was not going to be worth the price of whatever Walter Davis was costing. So there were many things that Jordan wanted that Krause and him had this rivalry going on where Jerry wasn't going to give in to him. And, and to Krause's credit, I mean, Michael has proven over time he's not a talent evaluator. See the Wizards, <laughs> see the Charlotte Bobcats. So, uh, you know, the, the, that was a good thing that there was somebody in there that was that was actually trying to do what they thought was best for the team and not just uh, cater to all of Michael's whims because he wasn't right uh, many of the times. Now, I'm, I'm sure there would have probably been some moves that he would have done that maybe Jerry uh, didn't that maybe would have perhaps propelled them. But, you know, a lot of them were, were dead wrong. So Krause deserves credit for that. So when you were covering the team, though, I mean, the, the, the move, the uh, series, they really highlights the fact that he was hard on the players, was mean and nasty to them and all this. But you didn't hear a lot of the players when like they didn't complain to you, did they? Like, did they say, oh, Michael's so mean to us? And I mean, you heard about the fights maybe with Kerr, but it wasn't I don't remember people blasting like Michael Jordan is the meanest person in the world. When, when you were covering the team, did you, did you hear stuff like that or did they did they I, I guess how what was the dynamic there? So, you know, I can go back to, you know, they used to practice at the Multiplex, which was a health club in Deerfield. It's, it's been in a million cuts in the documentary that you as, you know, if you lived out there and like I did, you and you belonged there, which is probably like 40 bucks a month. It wasn't a lot of money. Um, you know, you walk in and there's the Bulls practicing. And I can remember like, you know, Jordan taunting Stacey King and King running after him as Jordan's like running up the stairs to get away from him. Like it was, you know, they were, that was, they were younger and there was like real things like he would. And the Jordan rules had a lot of great stuff. And they're like, King's sitting there eating a bag of Doritos after he's told to, you know, watch his diet and, and Jordan's harping at him. So, but those guys to your, to your point, like they were never going to sit there and open up to the media 
especially somebody like myself who's you know brand new to it that, that michael was was some level of jerk but uh you know there was there was it wasn't any secret that you know jordan was incredibly demanding and would make guys uh you know would, would say what it was ever on his mind in a very harsh way but that was you know part of at least i think in most of the way he was looked at at the time like this part of what made him great and and um, just part of the deal of playing with him. All those guys, like Steve Kerr's done a great job just talking about, look, I'd be nowhere in my life if I hadn't played with Michael. He was a 12th, 13th guy on a team, and he goes from that to hitting a shot to win a championship. Everybody knows who he is and makes a ton of money, goes out and wins championships with the Spurs, and then from there he's able to continue into the you know executive and coaching career he's had. So, uh, I, I think most guys realize how much they benefited from being around Jordan. Even Will Purdue, who you know punched him and all that. Purdue, I just had him on my podcast, and, and Purdue was like, "Yeah, I, I greatly appreciate that I played with that guy. He made me better." We're talking to Mark Carmen of WGN uh, Radio and also Fansided dot com. One one last question: I, I I was at the game six in Utah, and I just think people don't realize how amazing Michael was in that game in terms of scoring 45 points but but Scotty Pippen I just remember him like limping around his back was so he couldn't even he looked like a, a senior citizen at old age home I mean, he, he couldn't run Rodman was crazy that game and Jordan of the 87 point I mean, he scored 45 of the 87 I mean, he was just doing everything on the court and I think it was one of the it was it's great that he had the great the final shot but also the game itself just against in that environment and the jazz with Malone and Stockton uh, I think that was the signature you know just a great signature moment of his career so it is fun and uh interesting all of it to look back on how close they were to not winning six titles i mean they're down four to the suns in 93 frank johnson's got a wide open 17 footer he probably makes that i don't know seven out of ten times misses it off the rim jordan gets the rebound goes down the court lays it in and then they you know then they get a stop and all of a sudden uh barkley gambles on pippen he's pitching to Horace and then Horace out to Paxi at the three, they win by one. I mean, game seven would have been dicey. Same thing with a game seven in Utah in 98, right? And to your point, like, Jordan was dragging that team. And Pippen, I guess what's going to be highlighted in nine and ten is that Scotty, Scotty's back was completely out of whack, and they're going to show a lot of his toughness behind the scenes, back and forth in the locker room. He, you know, he had a dunk early in the game, and his, he came down and his back locked up on him. And he basically just gutted it out as a decoy. So they were uh, they were on some level of last legs, which is where I you know people say they had nothing left. And I just want to underline that if Krauss had drafted any better in the '90s, and there was a ton of players they could have had, they wouldn't have been in such a dire situation. But um, he just he was unbelievable that will to pull them through when really his only guy that he was getting help from in '98 was Kukoc. Rodman was basically dead. Pippen had the bad back, Longley, and the, the rest of the team. I mean, he just wasn't getting much. So for him to be able to do that on the road, simply incredible. And and I, but the, the will of, of Jordan was just insane. I, I actually, before you you, you guys got to go, can you tell me the story of going to the barber shop and getting tickets? That's amazing. 
Well, the, the story is is that I was at I couldn't get tickets to the game. You were outside. There were tanks in the street, and I'm walking all around the stadium. I couldn't uh, I couldn't uh, get a ticket at all. There was nobody even had a ticket, and I was ready to give up. I mean, it was just hopeless. And I've been to a lot of sporting events, and so I said, "Let's try in this one barbershop. shop." And it was right by the stadium. It was like a it was about a half a mile from the stadium. And a guy who was in the barbershop said, "I have two. And I'm like, "I don't know." I go, "Do I trust you?" This and that. And he literally walked us. So we came up with the price. It was the most I've ever paid for a ticket. But he, when he walked in, we went through the layers of security. He said, I'm walking to your seats. And it wasn't just walking to the door. He, I, we just walked right into the stadium, walked through all the security, walked right down the seats. He even got me popcorn. The popcorn lady was walking around. He gave us popcorn. I mean, he knew everybody there. It was like Michael Jordan. Like He was more popular than Michael Jordan. And that was just so cool to be sitting. I was right behind the basket, like 12 rows up. And, and what I remember about that game was how Malone was just dominating Rodman. And for all these people that criticize Carl Malone and don't think he's elite, I mean, he was just amazing, just a force of nature in that game. And, and again, everybody thought that was the game that the Bulls were going to win. And, and they, and just a, just a tremendous uh, performance by the a great, a great jazz team, which is very underrated. I remember having a really weird feeling when Jordan's three at the end missed. I was like, oh, at least we get to see him play another game. But then they might lose. Like I was, that, those were the, my thoughts at the time. That's incredible. I'd love to hear what you paid for that ticket. Um, <laughs> but that is that's awesome. I mean, incredibly. I've, I've I've never heard a story like that. Walked into the barber shop and there, and there was the random guy with two tickets to arguably I don't know biggest game in Bulls history. Jordan's last game at home in the '98 season. That's incredible. I think they had to be. I want to sing. I bet you they were player tickets um, because it had to be where some of the Bulls get their haircut. It, it just seemed to be. I didn't sit around yeah. other people that had that, but uh, like for Kobe's last game, I sat. I was in in the Lakers and I bought a ticket from and I sat with the uh, Meta World Peace family, uh, Ron Artest's family. So I sat in that like in that section with them. And that was his tickets. That was a hard ticket to get, but that was. It had to be something like that. I was really lucky and fortunate. Now, I'm going to tell you on the radio so I went, when I went to Utah for game six it was unbelievable because it was the only time the Jazz play on a Sunday during the day so all the, if, they're, if you're a Latter-day Saint, you don't ever go to sporting events on Sunday and it was the, it's the last time they've ever played on a Sunday afternoon when the finals used to be earlier. It's like a six o'clock start which is like four o'clock their time. So the tickets were plentiful and none of the Bulls fans could even get there. So I had whatever ticket I wanted. I mean I paid honest for the best seat in the house I paid $500. That same ticket is like for the Warrior Series with the Cavs was like $100,000. And I sat next to Leonardo DiCaprio and people couldn't imagine, but I could have literally had any ticket I wanted uh, for the, uh, for the, the finals for the, at the jazz for that game six. That is painful for me that I didn't make that journey. Great job. Really proud of you. You've been listening to Mark Carmen, WGN radio and fansided.com. Thanks a lot, Mark, for coming on the show. Great stuff there from Mark Carmen here on Ira on sports. So Ira, what are you looking forward to this week before we wrap it up? Well, we got, again, we got live sports this weekend. Yeah. We got the NASCAR race. We got golf to, to follow and uh, just stay on t- what's going, what's happening in the rest of sports. And next week we're going to have uh, Joan Ryan who wrote the book intangibles unlocking the science and soul of team chemistry. Uh, that's it's the greatest book. I mean, we're watching the last dance and how the teams works and how Jordan works and she's just analyzed the San Francisco Giants and baseball teams in terms of what they do and it is really interesting and I said we you know the interview she had with Barry Bonds is going to be cool to talk to her about that so I'm excited about have her on the show uh, next week. We are out of time. Thanks so much to Keith Law from The Athletic. Also Mark Carmen of WGN. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.